Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. I hope that you all are, are, are doing well. For those who may not remember or recall, it's okay. We are, uh, as of right now, eight years of meeting together uh, this, this past this Sunday. And so praise God for that. And uh, I always like to just say it in a sense that we may understand that I can't believe it's already been eight years. Uh, praise God for that. But I do hope that you all are, are doing well. And we're going to continue in Exodus 14 this morning. This is why we read the beginning of Exodus 14. We, we covered that passage last, uh, last Sunday. And we're going to begin reading there in verse 15 in just a few moments. So at the end of chapter 13, God's people had enjoyed the, the presence of God by day and by night, by the, by the pillar of fire and by the pillar of a, of, a, of a cloud. And they were no longer a people in shackles or enslaved in Egypt, but they are now, but they are now a nation on their way to their inheritance that was promised to them, which is called the promised land. So that's what's happening. Chapter 14 comes along, and however, not so fast, the drama with Egypt is not over with. Symbolically, the serpent's tail has been cut off, but his head is still there. And so we get to chapter 14, where we saw how Pharaoh and the servants of Egypt, they changed their mind once again. They changed their, their mind and they wanted their slaves back, right? First it was, leave because my firstborn has been killed and now it's, we're going to come out and bring you back because now that we have to take out the trash, we have to do the chores, uh, this isn't so good. Let's go back and get them. But underneath, as we understand from chapter 14, that underneath, those are the earthly excuses, but God is showing us that he is absolutely sovereign over this entire situation, this, this entire predicament that eventually Israel is put in with their backs against the sea. And so God uses this his, by his plan his sovereign plan to put his people in a particular position that would draw Egypt out against them and ultimately against the Lord. And he tells us in verse 4, the Lord will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. So there is the purpose and plan behind this whole thing that God is seeking his glory. God is seeking his glory. Pharaoh sends out his army uh, against them, and we're going to see today how that goes for them. But that causes for Israel, at least, as their backs are against the sea, to totally lose all of their confidence and to lose all of their faith, in a sense, as they succumb to fear to Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord. And they complain and grumble to, to Moses. We read it this morning. You've, have you led us out here basically to die? It would have been better for us to just go be slaves back in Egypt than to 
than to be sit here and die. They cry out. All that they began to see and believe as they left out of slavery just a few days earlier as identifying this new priestly identity as God's people who is who God is their Lord they just abandon like that and Moses says to the people those three th- those three things right uh, do not fear stand firm be still and be quiet and so here Israel is in this place backs against the the wall backs against the the wall of the sea with the desert in from in front of them and Egypt is bearing down on them. You can see the picture of the, the horses are in full gallop of a thousand chariots. The thundering clatter of the galloping hooves of these massive animals. The clattering and clanging of the iron and the metal and the bronze. Bouncing and clanging as it is speeding closer and closer to them with a plume of a cloud of dust behind them. That's what they saw. And we remember what Moses says in verse 14, the last thing. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be silent. Let's look to chapter 14. Start reading in verse 15 together. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went out, went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, the morning watch, the the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavy. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. 
And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen all over the hosts of Pharaoh. And that followed them into the sea and that none of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. And the water, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his, and his, and in his servant Moses. And this is the word of the Lord and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I told you that this is one of the most epic scenes in all of the Bible. It's one of the biggest miracles. And being one of the most epic scenes and biggest miracles, it is one of the hardest for many to believe. It is a stumbling block for many to believe. When you come to places like this in the Bible, modern sensibilities and intelligence science and philosophies would reject its veracity, would reject its truthfulness. They would say it actually didn't happen that way, or this wasn't actually a miracle, or there is a good explanation for, for that. Of course, the big problem isn't necessarily or particularly this event in general, but overall, the problem is miracles themselves. Miracles cannot be true because, according to them, they cannot be scientifically proven. Now, this one in particular, God parting the Red Sea in two with the wind, making these massive walls of water, while a whole host, a whole nation, 600,000 to a million people walk across the Red Sea on dry land. Now we just read the passage and I can tell you that it does not answer every question that we may have about this event. It will not tell us about every detail of every place or thing when it comes to this particular event. In fact, we really don't even know where exactly along the Red Sea did this take place. This is one of those events that have been discussed and debated for centuries. Some have said that it's this, this is just a, merely a, a, a natural phenomenon, that Israel came up to this particular place at the right time time. And it just so happened that they could cross over on dry land. Now certainly as Christians, we, read, we just read the script, certainly Israel did show up at the right place at the right time. But it was not by coincidence or by the hand of man, but by the sovereign hand of God in leading his people there. Some would say that it was the, the changing of the tides, 
You know, the, the moon phases and, and the changing of the tides of the Red Seas that cause the, the water to ebb and flow. And then in this particular time where, where usually there might be some water covering some of the sand, the tide goes out gradually diminishing and disappearing, and now there is dry land. Some scholars have said that they crossed over not necessarily close to the Red Sea, which is further south, but more closely up to the Gulf of Suez, where it is a shallow area. And, and if the winds are just right, if the winds have been blowing for the just the right amount of time with the great high winds, that could push the water down the delta and down the area where they could cross over safely. Of course, we know that the problem with these, ex these explanations that are given to us of yeah, but, this is why, miracles can't be true. The problem with that, again, is the word of God. It's very clear that there were two walls of water. The timings were not coincidental, but supernatural. Moses did not have to wait for low tide. He did not have to wait for the, the winds to be just right to cross over. He trusted the Lord. The Lord told him, stretch your hands out. And Moses trusted the Lord. And he stretched his hands out over the waters and they parted. And when he stretched his hands out again, they returned. The same thing with the use of the wind. Another proposed argument that has actually been around for quite some time has been said that the translation that is used in the Bible for Red Sea is actually a mistranslation. It actually should say Reed Sea, that is R-E-E-D, the Reed Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, or the Papyrus Sea. And these would not necessarily be wrong. These are more of a very literal interpretation of the phrase that's used there to talk about to the, the Red Sea. And their argument is, is that if it is called the reed sea or the sea of reeds, reeds do not grow in the middle of the Red Sea. They grow in a marsh. They grow a part of a marsh that is part of the lake, which is a part of the delta that flows up to the Mediterranean, meaning a marsh of shallow water. Again, problem with that is the interpretation and the translation probably is right because it could justifiably mean either or. It also could mean that at one point the Reed Sea was a part of the Red Sea. And see, however, these are not arguments necessarily to discover the truth, but they are, they are arguments to destroy the truth. Because like I said in the beginning, right? The argument necessarily isn't about the importance of the Reds, the crossing of the Red Sea and the parting of the sea. The argument is against and the attack against miracles themselves. Why attack miracles, you say? Why attack miracles? That's a, that's a really good question, and here's the reason why. Because if there is no worldwide flood, if there is no creation in six days, or a creation account, if there is no miracle of 
such as this, God delivering his people by parting the Red Sea. If there is none of these things, then no wonder people can doubt that a man who died has been raised from the dead three days later. That is why. If there is no account of the Red Sea, then how could God raise someone from the dead? There's a story that I read in my study on this text about a liberal man who was preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. And at some point in the sermon, the preacher was referring to the crossing of the Red Sea in some metaphorical way to get some point across. And when he referenced the miracle, or referenced, excuse me, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, there was a man in the congregation that shouted out, Praise the Lord! Taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle! Well, the liberal preacher could not believe his ears. Stunned. Was stunned that this man can gain that point from what he was preaching, because it wasn't what he was preaching. He was a little perturbed, as you can say. That's such a theological error of an uneducated man would be erred in such a way. And so he saw it as his responsibility to correct the congregation and to correct this man. So the liberal preacher said, rather condescendingly, that is not a miracle. They were led across the marshland. And the tide was ebbing. The children of Israel just picked their way across six inches of water. And so this same man in the congregation, he shouted out again, Praise the Lord for drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a miracle! <laughs> Brothers and sisters, by the plain reading of the word of God, it has happened as it has happened. And this was a mighty miracle of the hand of God in which he barely flexed his muscle and humbled the greatest nation in the world. A mighty miracle of God to save his people and to judge the wicked. And as he has said over and over in this chapter, he would receive all the glory. Not Mother Nature, not tides, not the moon, but God. He would receive all the glory. And so the question for us this morning is this, in understanding this passage, what is it teaching us? What is it showing us? And the answer to that question is not what popular theology says or the popular hermeneutics would take this passage and says to you that you need to identify the Red Sea in your life that you need to cross and you need to figure out how to cross by faith. What is that one difficulty in your life? That one thing that you need to cross. Pfft, not the point of the passage. If that was the point of the passage, then brothers and sisters, why don't we go to every lake and every river and every ocean and interpret it the same way? How do I get across this? It is not primarily in te teaching us about what we are to do 
in times of trouble necessarily, but rather the grand theme, the grand idea, and what this passage is showing us and teaching us is about God and his glory. And that God is glorified in saving his people. And God is glorified when his righteous judgment is poured out on sinners. That he is glorified. Boy, say that in public. So there's three grand themes I want to show you from this passage. We certainly can unpack quite a bit more. But there's three grand themes that I want to show you this morning that points us to Jesus Christ so that you may delight in him and rejoice and worship in him in his great salvation. The first thing that we see is this, is that we see a mediator and a protector in this passage. So back in the story, verse 15, after Moses speaks to the Lord, God's going to speak to the people, God's going to fight for you. Be quiet. The Lord then comes back to Moses. Remember, this picture, right? They're coming straight at him. And the Lord looks at Moses and says, Why are you crying? Why, why are you crying? Tell Israel to move forward. Move forward. Not only kind of odd timing, you'd be like, okay, Lord, do something. But also sort of an odd question. Odd question to Moses. Right? Moses wasn't the one who cried out. You might remember, he's not the one who cried out in fear. He's not the one who questioned. That was Israel. So why is Moses being reprimanded here? And the answer to that question is this, is that Moses, as we have seen through Exodus, is that Moses is now the one who stands as the people's representative before God. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this. God has preserved Moses as a baby, raised him up, trained him in the desert, and called him to serve him to be what? His representative to his people. So that God would send him to deliver his people. And so here is now God, right, at the burning bush. God now identifies himself, in a sense, with Moses as the one he sends. As Moses is already identified with his own people as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. And so through the whole Exodus, Moses stands as God's representative, right? Telling God's people's word and going before Pharaoh and speaking for the Lord time and time again. Moses was not just a leader. He wasn't just their deliverer. We certainly don't want to diminish that idea and that truth, but Moses is God's representative, meaning he is a mediator between God and Israel. Moses gets the rebuke here because as it was meant for all of Israel to act in faith and to move forward toward the sea, a mediator is one who stands between two parties to bring them together. And in this situation, there's God, and he is holy and righteous, and then there are his, his people who are sinners and fearful and faithless. And to bring them together, the Lord God sends Moses, a mediator. And the Lord tells his mediator to do what? Well, certainly we've seen him acting in Exodus, but here in, 
chapter 14 and verse 16. He is telling Moses to act on his behalf, to lift up your staff and stretch your hand out over the sea and, and divide it, that the people of Israel may, may go through the sea on dry grounds, telling Moses, this is how I'm going to deliver you. But he's asking Moses to do something, to take that stick, right? The stick we've seen throughout this whole entire uh, story in Exodus and to hold it up over the sea and to divide the sea. Now Moses, he can hold his stick up all day long, but he's not the one that's dividing the sea. It's the Lord who's dividing the sea. But the Lord still tells his mediator to act. And why? It is to show the people a physical representation of God's hand at work in their midst. In verse 21, Moses is obedient. And he stretches out his hand over the sea. And through him, the Lord drives the waters, the waters back with the east wind all night until there was a dry land. And then verse 26, the opposite is true again. When the water goes back into place, the Lord tells Moses to stretch out your hand and bring the, the water back. And it did. Now, you might think that this is a small point. But this is a growing theme in the scripture. That Moses is a mediator. Moses was the man in the middle who identified, yes, himself as Israel, but also identified himself with God. And now I, I say this as an all-important theme, again, because this pattern goes throughout the rest of the Bible. That there are mediators that God would use between himself and his people. Joshua, David, the prophets, etc., but they all culminate, brothers and sisters, into one mediator. One mediator in particular. The one mediator that we all needed. The better mediator than Moses. The better mediator than David. The better mediator than Joshua. The better mediator than, the mediator than all the prophets. And his name is Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So unlike Moses, Jesus is the mediator that never sinned. He never sinned. Moses has sinned. But like Moses... Like Moses, he was rebuked for sin that was not his own. He took upon himself our sin. Jesus didn't raise a stick to deliver God's people, but rather he was hung on a cross. The mediator was God himself, the Son of God, who according to the book of Hebrews is the mediator of a better covenant so that those who are called according to his grace may receive the promised inheritance. That is a huge theme. Christ, our mediator. And along with mediator, we see also how the Lord shows that he is our protector. That he is our protector. If you look at verse 19, it says that the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. 
The pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it was lit up at night without one coming near all the night. There's a lot there, but let me try to make this as simple as possible. The pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, they were leading Israel out of Egypt and eventually to the, the Red Sea where they are now. But now that as Egypt is coming toward them, their backs are against the sea. What does the Lord do? The Lord takes the angel of the Lord, which as we know is represented before as the pillar of fire, and the pillar of the cloud, and he brings them around. He encircles his people and brings them around and puts them between Egypt and Israel. Between Egypt and Israel. Okay? So, of course, there's, there's much speculation. What does this mean about the angel of God? What does this mean? It's, well, it could, it could simply mean, and I say that with quotes, that it is an angel. It could also be a theophany, sort of like we've seen as the representation of God, as God manifested himself in the burning bush. It could also be a, a Christophany, which is a manifestation of, of Christ in the Old Testament. The answer is we really do not know, because what really does matter, or excuse me, we really do not know, and it doesn't really matter that we, we don't know. That doesn't matter, because what really matters is that we understand that God represented himself in a very personal way to his people. That this is intentionally to show them that the angel of God, however that was manifested, that God was manifesting himself, his presence with his people. If a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire wasn't clear enough, here is an angel of God now that is standing between the, the host of the armies of Egypt and the host of Israel. As we like to pray, God sent himself as a hedge of protection around his people to stand as protector between his people and the enemies of God. And we see what the Lord does in verse 20. Which says that Israel was in the light. Do you see that there? And Egypt was in the darkness. What a stunning sight that must have been. To have a bird's eye view of that event, of that picture. I have wondered if, if a painter has ever tried to capture that scene. I'm sure someone out there has. The pictures are valuable art is not necessarily valuable all the time just because of the artist himself, but be what the picture is representing, what's emblematic about it, how it stirs the emotions of people to, to look upon it and to remember something else or to be mesmerized or thought of something greater instead of themselves. That's, that's real, real art. And this picture, I can imagine if it was painted, is just stunning to see. Because it is a similar picture of all mankind. That you are either in the light being delivered, or you are in darkness destined for judgment, and yet you are still foolishly raging against the light. And for those who are being delivered, the Lord is their protector. 
And I think that this is what, what David is referring to in Psalm 37, 4, when, he's, that when he says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them and deliver and delivers them. So those who fear him and delivers them. Isn't that wonderful? Think of that picture, that the angel of the Lord encamping around him, just like Israel here, encamping around those who fear the Lord. And he delivers them. Oh, that gives me so much hope. And it, it gives me hope because it, this is so absolutely true. Yes, because the Bible is true. But it gives me hope as well, knowing that this is absolutely true, because Jesus Christ, our mediator, our protector, what did he do, brothers and sisters? He stood in between us and our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the judgment of God, so that we could be delivered. He encamped around us. Jesus Christ the better mediator and our protector of those whom fear him. The second theme is that God's people pass through death. In verses 21 through 25, the Lord enacts exactly what he tells Moses earlier to do. And Moses stretches out his hand, the lands are, the waters are divided, and all the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a, a wall on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued in after them, and they went after them, just as God said that they would do. I'm going to harden their hearts so that they pursue you, and that's exactly what they do with all their horses, with all their chariots, and with all their horsemen. And they go into a panic as their chariots are stuck in the mud. And they cry out to the Lord, don't they? They cry out to the Lord. The Lord, through his mediator, Moses, drives apart the waters of the sea. And all of his people walk on dry land. And we can talk about all the different possibilities of place and distance and time and how long it took for them to, to get across and all of that. But all of that necessarily does not matter. We do not need to get bogged in all of those particular things. Just be in awe in a sense of the wonder of, this, of what these words say, that it was a wall of water. And I sort of in picture of walking through a canyon. I've never done that walking through a canyon and seeing these towering walls to, our, to my right and to my left. Actually, I probably have East Coast canyons. And you're looking up. Can you imagine the people of Israel looking up, not at rock, but water. So there's a lot that can be said there, but we're not meant to get bogged down into those, those particular details, but rather we're to just get caught up in the fact that God did this. And he did this for his 
own glory, but part of his glory in him being glorified is to save his people from death. The water in this story is real water. And the Lord uses it as, 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 a, as a, a form of literal death and judgment upon Egypt. So water throughout the Bible, as we see, is representative in many times, in many places, it's a representative of, of death and judgment throughout the Bible. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. When the earth was formed and without void, without form and void, darkness was over the deep as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. There was chaos, there was darkness, there was no order until the, until the Lord spoke and gave it light and form and order. You know the story of, Moses, or story of Noah. What, what God did in, in, Mo, in, in the time of Noah in sending judgment over a sinful world, he sent a flood, water. Just like he did here at the Red Sea. The, the Lord uses water again as Judgment. Egypt gets stuck in the mud, but we know it gets worse for them because in verses 27 through 29, as Moses directs the walls to come crashing down as they have safely passed, the Egyptians see that there's judgment and death being brought literally upon them. But just like at creation, what did God create it from, the form, from that was which without form and void? He created dry land. What did God do for Noah after 40 days and 40 nights of, of chaos and torrential rain and flood? The God, God led the ark to dry land. And before the destruction of the Egyptians, God's people crossed over on dry land through the waters of death. God delivered his people. You know, in the New Testament, water is still a symbol of death, a symbol of judgment. After Jesus died on the cross, his side was pierced, and it was blood and water that came out of the wound. In the ordinance of baptism, water is not only symbolizing cleansing, or the forgiveness of sin, but it is symbolizing death. Jesus was immersed in water as he would be immersed in the judgment of God at the cross for the sins of others. Water was the symbol, and the cross became the reality. But Jesus passed through the waters of judgment... As God has previously done in the Old Testament, he delivered and passed through his people through judgment as he did with Jesus Christ. By his death and burial and resurrection, he has now brought us, his people, through the, the waters of death and judgment. Jesus was plunged into the depths of a watery judgment so that we can pass through on dry ground. And our baptisms, as Jesus' baptism, symbolizes that for us. It is a powerful symbol of God's power to save his people through the waters of judgment. Romans 6, do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by a baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does baptism then represent? It represents death, but then new life as Christ has brought us through. The whole point that, that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 3, 21, is the basis of, of his death and his resurrection. By faith, we are not only asking him to cleanse us and to forgive us of sins, but through then our, our baptism, not as an act of salvation, but as a promise for salvation. Baptism is a symbol to us. It doesn't save us. It's a symbol of the salvation that God has given to us as an act that we all go through as we enact that we have died with Christ. That we have died with Christ. And yet, like Christ, we have passed through the waters of judgment. Or because of Christ, we have passed through the waters of judgment. And knowing that one day we will be resurrected as Christ has been resurrected. It wasn't because we got into a pool or a river or a lake or sprinkled as a baby. As someone says some words to us, no. It is solely the work of Christ. And Peter's emphasis of Christ's death by by the, um, as, as the means by which believers are brought into God's presence is so that we would enter into God's presence on the basis of his grace alone. So brothers and sisters, we can rejoice then that as Israel walked across dry land, stunned, I'm sure, that sinners like us and a sinner like me could walk through the waters of judgment on dry land because of the grace and mercy of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And if you are in Christ, I pray that you would rejoice with me in that reality. That the waters of death have not swallowed you up, but he has given you life to walk on dry land. And knowing that, that our reality, because of Jesus Christ, is we are not standing in fear on the west bank of the Red Sea. But you are like Israel now on the east bank, staring and stunned and marveled. That you have just walked across dry land through an ocean of judgment because of the Lord's grace. And the last thing that is in our passage that flows from the rest of salvation history is this, is that God is glorified in the salvation of his people and if I could make it a little bit more poignant, I would say this, that God is glorified 
in your salvation. God is glorified in your salvation. All that he had promised, we have seen to come to pass. And why? Because it has been his sovereign plan from the beginning. There has been judgment, there has been deliverance, or to say it another way, we have seen salvation come through judgment to the glory of God. In verse 17, again, we are, Moses is told that, that even as the armies of Egypt are bearing down, and what is God going to do? He's going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They are going to chase you into the sea. God is sovereign. He is just. He is righteous in hardening the hearts of the Egyptians to their sure death. And everyone is going to know that it was Yahweh who had done this. In verse 18, this is important. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And why did God part the Red Sea? Why did God part the Red Sea? For his own glory. For his own glory that Egypt would know. Oh, I'm going to be glorified. They're going to know. God is glorified in their demise. In the final judgment, the Lord will do the same. Evil men and women will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And God in his just wrath and righteousness will be glorified. In Revelation chapter 18, the Lord will cast Satan, listen, listen to the words here, into a sea. Like water, right? A sea after the great judgment. And in Revelation chapter 19, there will be great rejoicing on the part of God's people. Revelation 19 verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. God is glorified in his just judgments. The glorious God is firmly displayed in the judgment of the wicked. I don't need to go over much more. We've been going over this for weeks in the book of Exodus. So look down at verse 30. This is powerful. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The Lord saved Israel. The Israelites. Why? He saved Israel for his glory. He saved Israel for his glory. Hebrews 11, 29. By faith, the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea on dry land. Why? Because God was being glorified in saving his people. Verse 31. He's being glorified even in the eyes of his people as they are seeing the dead bodies as they wash up on the shore. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that they feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So as the bodies are beginning to wash up on the shore, Israel saw the mighty hand of God to destroy the Egyptians. But even greater, they are standing there as witnesses of the sovereign grace 
of God because they have been delivered by grace through faith. God is glorified in the salvation of his people. He is glorified in saving his people. And this is why then God put forward his son, our mediator, our protector. To, he sent his son to be a ransom, to be a substitute, to propitiate, to satisfy the, the just wrath of God, the demand for judgment by his blood. And the Lord justly justifies the ungodly who have faith in Jesus. God is glorified, brothers and sisters, beloved, O oh church, listen, God is glorified in your salvation, O oh sinner, O oh ungodly, because it demonstrates his perfect justice and his holiness. He is glorified because of the great cost of making a way to preserve his justice and mercy by sending his son, his righteous and sinless son, to die on the cross for us. Jesus is glorified because he is that pure and spotless lamb who didn't account equality with God as something to be grasped, but he came and he gave his life as a ransom for many and he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus took our judgment. Jesus took your judgment. He became your sin. Let the things sink in. He became your sin so that you could be delivered through him. And before the foundation of the world, he chose you to glorify himself by saving you. Here is this unrighteous, fearful, weak, once enslaved people on the bank of the Red Sea who have just witnessed one of the most powerful events in all of human history. And they stand there and probably say some of the things that you say when you recollect about your sin. When the Holy Spirit begins to bring up your sin. And you say to yourself, why me, oh God? Why would you save me, such a wretch? Why? I'm like the dog who turns back to his vomit probably tomorrow. Why? And they hear it as we hear God's word says, for my glory. For my glory. The whole grand theme in Exodus, this pattern that's throughout the Bible, is meant for you to see the greater. For, to you, for you to see and to believe that salvation, that not only comes through Jesus Christ, that you have received 
by faith glorifies God. That though you are a sinner and were being sanctified in the flesh by the Holy Spirit, praise God for that, that you are a walking, talking, breathing human being made in the image of God, but by God's grace, He has regenerated you. He has justified you. He has delivered you through the waters of judgment by His Son, Jesus Christ, for His glory. You have been saved for the glory of God. Stop diminishing it to smaller and lesser things. Stop diminishing your life to being of just buying stuff or jobs or money or relationships or popularity or even the way we look. You have been saved, created, and saved and regenerated, brought through the waters of death for the glory of God. Live for greater things. And it can get no greater than that. Another thing that's very humbling to them is they're standing on the sea and they're living on the shore. If they're sarcastic, kind of like me, I would turn around and I'd look at my buddy, I'd look at James or something, I'd be like, dude, we got some big shoes to fill. Because God has saved us for his glory. How humbling is that, but how, how, how much of a blessing is that? Your life is not minuscule. Your life is not meaningless. But you have been saved to the glory of God to stand every day at the water's edge and marvel and delight and trust in God. And could there be no greater blessing and joy than that? That it was God's great and glorious plan before the foundation of the world. To glorify himself in saving you. And all of God's people said,